Lord in heaven, I pray that you anoint my lips with your words, and I pray that you also um, open the ears of the congregation today uh, so that there may be no, no miscommunication and that your word may be pure in, uh, through my mouth and into the minds of the listeners. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm gonna tell you a story before I begin uh, about Tona. Tona and her family live in a European country that I cannot remember right now. Um, and Tona and her mother one day answered the door when a man came and knocked on it. And turns out it was a coal porter. You, know, you guys know what coal porters are? Coal porters are people who do, go door to door, Seventh-day Adventists, who uh, give books uh, written by Ellen White or books to help the study, studying the Bible to the neighborhood, the community. And turns out this coal porter decided to give them the great controversy, the great controversy. And Tona and her mother took the book and they read it. After you left, they read it and they loved it. They were enjoying it, the precious truths that they were learning from this book. And needless to say, I think it would have made Tona want to stand up for what she was finding out in, want to stand up for what she believed in. One day, her father came home from the fields and he was not a very religious man, not religious at all. And he saw the book, asked Tona where it was from, and Tona said, well, it was from a coal porter. She couldn't lie. And he said, yeah, this is not good. And he threw it into a fireplace oven, stove type of thing. Threw it in there. Tona ran to go see if she could maybe somewhat salvage it after he left, but the covers were already burning off too late. Next day, she was sweeping the ashes out from the fireplace. Turns out uh, it was not burned. The covers had burned off, like she had been seeing yesterday, but the rest of the book was perfectly intact. It didn't burn at all. So she took the book and continued to read it. And when her father found out, he asked her, how is this even possible? Like this, this, this oven was, the fire was hot enough to bake bread. I don't understand. And she, all she could think of was, well, I guess this is a book that decided to stand up for itself. And I'm willing to stand up for the truth in it. And her example, the example of that book being saved miraculously in the fire by no doubt an angel's hand caused her father to believe as well and stand up for what he believed in too. And we have a similar story here in, in Galatians. Galatians chapters one and two. We're gonna start in Galatians chapter one. We can see here Paul, really the whole point of these first couple of chapters is Paul showing that he will stand for what he believes in in order for the Galatian churches to believe in him, believe in the truth as well. We're gonna to go to Galatians chapter one. Galatians chapter one, if you're there, say amen. If you're, if you're there, if you're not there, say mercy. All right, we're gonna start in Galatians one and verse one. It says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And from the start, we can see Paul is already showing his calling in Christ, how he has the truth from Christ. He is not sent from men, he is sent from God. 
To the churches of Galatia, continue reading, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forevermore, amen. And this opening statement of Paul is also his thesis. His thesis for the rest of the book and it's what he believes in, that Christ came to give himself for our sins so that we can be rescued from this present evil age so that we could have a second chance. Going down to verse six, Paul begins his dialogue. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul is amazed to the point of outrage that these new, truths, these different gospels uh, given to them by those who want to disturb the Galatian churches and to distort the gospel of Christ, that they are so willing to quickly turn from what they already believed in to something new. The Galatian churches are like, are like that one guy who is dating his girlfriend and then sees another girl and dumps his girlfriend and goes over there. This is the Galatian church to a T. Now, a little history is required to understand what's going on here. So this is in the context of Acts chapter 15. We're not gonna turn there for the sake of time, but Acts chapter 15, basically the story is this. Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, John, they're all down in Jerusalem having a general, general conference, if you will. General conference, and they're having some issues because Jewish Christians are saying, you know what, we should make the Gentile Christians be circumcised and follow all these different rules that we do. And the Gentile Christians were saying, oh, I don't think that's necessary. At the end of the day, they made the decision that the Gentile Christians did not have to follow the uh, ordinances of the Jewish customs. It just wasn't necessary. But the Jewish Christians were upset about this, so they decided to go and start spreading these same seeds of doubt and these different gospels along the different churches that they went to. And they ended up in Galatia, where the Galatians were only too happy, apparently, to adopt this truth, which is saved by works. That was the push behind their theology. Paul, see, Paul here is not upset that they are saying, oh, you should be circumcised. No, he, that's not the point here. The point, that's not the point. He, he's already had his protege Timothy circumcised. That's not a big deal to him the, that they're trying to force the Gentiles to do that as well. The point is, is that they're coming about it with a saved by works mentality, and that's something Paul cannot tolerate. And you'll see that throughout the rest of the chapter. And we're gonna come back to that in a bit too. Continuing on verse eight, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now, most theology students would know this, but because the majority of you are not theology students, I'll show, I'll tell you right now that whenever a phrase in the Bible is repeated twice, it's for emphasis and it's very important. It is ultra important. This gospel, any gospel contrary, this is what Paul's saying, he says it twice, any gospel contrary, it doesn't matter if it's coming from an angel from heaven, ignore it, they're cursed, don't listen to them. 
Verse 10, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. There would be no point in serving Christ if I was serving men. Don't listen to men. Listen to my message that's coming from God. And you can see here in these few verses that we just went over that Paul is already coming to defense of the truth, coming to defend his beliefs so that the Galatians can believe and stand up for the truth as well. Continuing on to verse 11, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And right here, we get the reason for why what Paul is preaching is so important to him, why he's willing to stand up for it. It's because it's from Jesus himself. There's no higher authority Paul knows of, so he needs to stand up for it. He wants the Galatians to stand up for it too. Then Paul goes into a bit of storytelling. And this is always the best, personally for, the, for me, the best part of any Bible, Bible uh, passage of the stories. Um, so let's look into it. Starting in verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being a more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He was outclassing his colleagues, his coworkers around him because he was so zealous. This zeal that he had in trying to crush out the Christian belief is apparent in Acts chapter nine. Let's go there, Acts chapter nine. This is the story of his conversion. This is the day of his conversion. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Acts chapter 9 and verse 1 and 2. Acts 9 verses 1 and 2. Keep your finger in Galatians. We'll be going right back there. But for now, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is the Christian church, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem breathing threats and murder, still breathing threats and murder. This guy is intense, he is zealous. You can already, you can feel the zealousness of Saul, the passion coming off the words of the page. And Ellen White even expounds on this even more in Acts of the Apostles, page 118. It says, on the morning of that eventful day, Saul had neared Damascus with feelings of self-satisfaction because of the confidence that had been placed in him by the chief priest. To him had been entrusted grave responsibilities. He was commissioned to further the interests of the Jewish religion by checking, if possible, the spread of the new faith in Damascus. He had determined that his mission should be crowned with success and had looked forward with eager anticipation to the experiences that he expected were before him. This zeal he had, he had determined his mission would be successful. He was going to go through with it, and thank God he didn't. Thank God Jesus stepped in right before he made a horrible mistake and saved him. And God turned around that zeal for his glory. God turned that zeal around for his glory, and you can see here, as we continue reading, going back to Galatians, Galatians 1, and starting up again in verse 15. 
But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Paul here is so zealous and he's so convinced in his calling of Christ that he does not even bother to confer with a living soul of his calling. He doesn't even go down to the apostles in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, he doesn't go to them and say, hey, I just wanna make sure I'm doing the right thing here. He doesn't even do that. He's so convinced. He's so on fire for God, so passionate, so zealous, and so ready to serve his Lord that he, this is a part of the passion that makes him stand for what he believes. And this passion should be stirring the members of Galatia. As we're reading through this, this passion you can feel from Saul's, Paul, Paul's words um, should be stirring up the truth in the hearts of the Galatian church. Uh, verse 18, continuing on. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that is Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. Keep this in mind, verse 23 and 24. But only they kept hearing he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. This is a powerful, huge moment for Paul. And he's telling the Galatian church this because there are, peop they are people who are looking to him as an example, okay? This is a, a big thing. Paul's example, who he used to be and who he was now caused others to believe and would have made it imperative for him to stand up for what he believed because he knows he cannot be wrong in this case. He does not want to be a stumbling block. This is a important lesson here for people who are leaders in not only the church but in everyday life. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You have to know what you're doing as a doctor. People's lives depend on it. You have to know what you're doing as a pastor because people's salvation depends on it. You have to be willing to sacrifice. If you are an elder of the church, if you're a nurse, if you are a teacher, it doesn't matter what you're doing. We all have standards to uphold and if we don't hold that up, we can easily cause others to fall. Too easily. And Paul knows this. And he's willing to confirm and stand up for what he believes to help those looking up to him, to stand up for them as well. Now, we're gonna continue on through the story in Galatians 2. Galatians 2, verse one, it says, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. And right here, you can already tell that Paul, he's experienced this. He's experienced the Jewish Christians coming up and trying to uh, under, undermine his authority and trying to get rid of what he had been talking to the churches about. And so he's to the point where he's coming to Jerusalem and meeting in private, in secret, with these people. 
with Peter, James, John, the leaders of the church, those of reputation, and because he's afraid that he would have been running in vain. He's afraid that he, he's been doing all this for nothing and that eventually one day they'll undermine his authority and they'll do something about it. But notice verse three, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Well, this is interesting, this is different. They're not doing anything about it this time. This is, this is good, but it's not. Verse four, but, it was, but because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, that is, the freedom that the Gentiles had from the Jewish customs, which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage or back to their beliefs. It was all clear for Paul on the outside, but under, underhandedly in the inside, these Jewish Christians were still working, trying to come up with ways to get to him. But here's the crux of the passage, verse five, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Paul stood up for what he believed so that the truth could remain for the Galatian church to stand up as well. Paul says it outright in verse five, I would not listen to them for even an hour about how their new theology could possibly be a good thing. Did not listen to it because I know that would cause you to fall so I'm standing up for what I believe in to help you. And it gets better, actually. Verse six, but from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. They didn't try to say, oh yeah, um, maybe we should probably add and contribute some stuff from what they're saying, what they're uh, suggesting to your theology. No, actually, on the contrary, verse seven, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. And right here, Paul gets what he needs, the support from the church leadership. If you will, this is like, this is, this is like the equivalent of the conference president backing you up. This is Peter, James, and John coming and supporting their church member. At this point, Paul is not really a church leader. He's a missionary, yes, but he's really only a member of the church, and they are coming to help him out. This is a good lesson here for church leaders today, that they should stand by and support the callings of their members. If a member has a calling to go somewhere, support that. If a, if a member wants to do something great for God, support that. And it's also similar, similarly, it's a good thing for church members to not be afraid to stand up for their callings as well. Paul was not afraid to do it, neither should you be. Well, this was all fine and dandy until verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. So he'd be eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles, uh, talking to them, fellowshipping. And then when 
the Jewish Christians sent from James would come, he would, in verse, continuing on verse 12, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. So Peter is playing the hypocrite. He does not want to look bad from the Jewish Christians, even though he's already come out and supported Paul and his truth and what he's teaching. And it got so bad, verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. This is, this is the coworker and close friend of Paul, the one who was also ordained to go out and reach the Gentiles, and he's falling into hypocrisy as well. And this is too much for Paul. Paul can't stand this. He says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, in the presence of all, in front of everyone, he calls them out and says, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Paul has guts to call out a church leader like that in front of everyone. Even though it's true, that would still be a scary experience, no doubt. Yet, Paul does it because he knows the truth has to be stood up for sometimes. No one is perfect, not even Peter, the leader of the church. Not by a long shot. And Paul, as a result of Peter's hypocrisy, delivers one of the most beautiful expositions, uh, probably written in, script, in scripture starting from verse 15 all the way to the end of the chapter. Let's just go ahead and read that. It says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Paul's saying, you guys, you don't understand. You guys are playing the hypocrite. What are you doing? You, we're not saved by the law. We are saved but through faith in Jesus Christ. We're not, no one is gonna be justified by the law. That's what he's saying. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. No, 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 no. That's not the point here. The point, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Why would I go back to my old way of life? That doesn't make any sense. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. This is my favorite part of the whole passage. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Can I hear an amen? That is probably one of Paul's finest expositional passages in Scripture. And he makes a solid point at the end of the chapter. He says, if, if we're going to play this game, if we're going to keep the law to be saved, and Christ didn't, he died for nothing. Like, what are we even doing here? And this is a huge issue, and I wish I had time to cover it more in depth. Righteousness by faith is such a crucial, I repeat, a crucial belief in our church, and already always has been, from the days of Paul to the days of Ellen White and Joseph Bates to us today. But unfortunately, from the time period of Paul to the time of Ellen White and Joseph Bates to our day today, there have been those who always claim we should be 
trying to be saved by what we do, by our works. And this is something Paul cannot stand for. He has to stand up for what he believes. And I would agree with him. I want to stand up for what he believes because yes, I myself, and I'm sure many of you out there have at some point in your life thought that we need to be good to get to heaven. Oh, it's so simple to think that. As little kids, we pray, dear Jesus, help us to be good little boys and girls. But we don't ask for the power that comes through the grace of God to do it. Rather, we think sometimes that we need to be good to get to heaven, when no, that's not the point. That's not it at all. Paul makes it so, so clear. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he says, for by grace we are saved through faith, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. When we received a toy at Christmas time as children, it brought us joy and happiness. It was a gift that brought us joy and happiness. We didn't go around trying to be joyful and happy to get the gift. That doesn't make any sense. Paul is saying, guys, we are not saved through the law. We don't need to be legalists here. We need to follow the Bible, what it says. Because I look around sometimes and I see, sometimes, unfortunately, I see in myself and in other people the tendencies to try to be saved by the law, to keep the law in order to get to heaven. Or I see the other extreme, people saying, well, God's got it all, he covered me with his grace, I don't have to worry about keeping the works anyway. No, that's not true either, because God said that if we are going to be good trees, we're going to bear good fruit, amen? We have to be willing to be changed. That's the point of what Paul, Paul is saying. Here's my concluding thoughts. Paul makes it clear that because we've been changed and we are saved by grace through faith, not by the law, that that is how we are saved. And we need to be willing to stand up for that, just like Paul was willing to stand up for the truth. And, I'm, and I hope, I hope that the Galatians listened to what Paul said and were willing to go through with what he said as well. Why should we stand up for the truth? Why should we stand up for this truth specifically? Well, that's pretty clear from Paul's closing statements that we just read in chapter two. Because we have been changed by Christ. Because he has given us this free, not free, but gift given in his own blood. Because of this gift, we should be willing to not go back to our old way of life, no. That's what he said in verse 18, he said, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Why would I go back to my old way of life? I know better now. I have a better way of life. We should be willing to adapt to that new way of life and let Christ live in us and be willing to defend that truth and the person who stands for it, Jesus Christ.